Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, every week, every episode, by my friend and co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I am pumped for war. <laughs> yes, it is off to war. The Gulf War, in fact. We're going to March of 1991, or I guess, actually, October of 1999, for <laughs> David O. Russell's, I guess you could call it a... Critical and financial success. Oh, I thought you were going to say a critique. It's <laughs> David Russell's critique. Of, On uh, the Gulf War. Yes. <laughs> yes, here for episode 18, we are stepping into The Three Kings. Very, very well-liked movie by most of America, apparently. Starting with like the flagship review, Roger Ebert at the movies said... It has the freedom and recklessness of Oliver Stone or Robert Altman in their mad dog days, in a visual style that hungers for impact. That's Roger Ebert, our idol, leading the charge, sadly. Andrew O'Heher, or O'Heher, I don't know, from Salon, Salon.com says, Three Kings is one of the most exciting Hollywood action films in years, and the best Vietnam movie since Apocalypse Now. Was he paying attention? <laughs> uh, Andrew... John Popick from Planet Sick Boy says, There's a shootout that may even be cooler than Keanu dodging bullets in slow motion in The Matrix. I was just about to say that best action movie in my dick. Like, The, <laughs> the Matrix came out. Well, yeah. And Speed was uh, several years prior. You're, you're uh, revealing your Keanu Reeves bias here. I'm revealing my bias for good action movies. Mm -hmm. Well, our, our final... Pro review comes from Emily Blunt. Could it be the actress Emily Blunt running the Blunt review before she hit it big? Maybe. Uh, her wise words of wisdom. This ain't your dad's war movie, that's for sure. If her career derails here pretty soon, I think she'll have a show on like ABC Family called The the Blunt Truth or what was it? <laughs> the Blunt Review. The Blunt Review. The yeah. Blunt Truth is better. I think that maybe, you know, some retooling of the brand. and uh, It'll be like her and Allison Janney. <laughs> Allison Jane is booked. She's uh, a mom. Okay, so yes, here for Three Kings. As I said, we are in March of 1991. That's where we begin. We're informed that the war had just ended. Uh, we get a shot of a very empty desert with a lone, what looks to be, Iraqi insurgent coming up on the hill. And our first character in the movie, Mark Wahlberg, appears with the question, Are we shooting? He looks down the scope of his gun. And... This Iraqi soldier pulls his weapon out, so Mark Wahlberg promptly kills him. And that starts the movie into like a big party scene. All you need to know about what this movie thinks of the American army is in those first five minutes. If you go by what this movie's saying, American soldiers are uh, gun crazy, eager to kill, eager to party while they're in foreign lands, have absolutely no respect for foreign culture, no qualms about stealing, cheating, lying. They're basically the worst of the worst. But it's done in that David O. Russell way where the music's fun and it looks cool, so it's okay. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this uh, done by, by a less, uh, I guess, 
Trixie filmmaker, it would be the equivalent of treason. But no, because Russell is just like really getting you pumped for, for these rascals that are really betraying the American ideals. But no, they're cool because it's George Clooney and it's Mark Wahlberg and it's Spike Jones for some reason. Um, yeah, that was a surprise to me, as I told you. It- saw this movie years, years, years ago, and I did not remember Spike Jones being in it. But yeah, we start off badly. That tells you right off the bat, we are here on a journey that's going to disrespect our army. And personally, that just ruined the experience from the very beginning for me. And like I said, it's trivialized just because we get these little fun facts about our main characters, such as Mark Wahlberg, Troy Barlow, who we find out's a new father, Conrad Vig, the aforementioned Spike Jones, who wants to be Troy Barlow is what it says. Just jokes that aren't hitting right away. Uh, Jamie Kennedy showed up. I didn't remember that at all. I, I have a note from later in the movie, but it basically applies to the whole movie, which is, why is Jamie Kennedy in this? Uh, I mean, I like him as a performer, but he really, he's kind of put to waste here. Yeah, I think he's there for the comedic effect that never really hits. But. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, as, as our discussion will reveal, this is a comedy that really doesn't... It kind of loses its way. It forgets it's a comedy a lot of the time. It's a comedy that doesn't realize it's a horrible, horrifying war drama. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or, conversely, it's a war drama that forgets the war drama and starts being silly. And, listen, we're not being offensive because, see, it's funny. It's okay because we're playing the Beach Boys now. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, Jamie Kennedy plays specialist Walter Wogeman. Uh, we're introduced to George Clooney, who in the second half of this we'll talk about the interesting role he had, but he is... Sergeant Archie Gates, who is two weeks away from retirement, which immediately would make you think he's going to die in the movie. Right, but but you know he is he is George Clooney, so he's introduced by banging Judy Greer. Exactly, Judy Greer now on her second appearance in our podcast, and this one infinitely more entertaining than her previous. Absolutely, she has maybe a quarter of the screen time that she had in Elizabethtown, but she makes an impression. She is, I think, a news journalist that's there, and yes, she's she's, she's a news reporter. But not the news reporter that's assigned to George Clooney. That would be. Uh... But Clooney's giving her the real scoop. Well, yes. <laughs> no, the real news reporter assigned to George Clooney is Adriana Cruz, who, her little fun fact, five time Emmy runner up. She is played by Nora Dunn of, I guess, SNL Infamy because she had kind of a bad reputation and was difficult to work with on that. Yeah, she's difficult to work with in the movie, in this movie, as a reporter. she She's looking for a real story. And I guess one of the clunky subplots or criticisms that David Russell is throwing at the U.S. and the U.S. Army in this movie is that, oh, well, you know, the Iraqi war, the Iraq war was like a non-war. It was constantly throughout the movie. You have people saying, I don't know what we're doing here. And I, the war's over. I don't even know what happened. And at some point, uh, another famous actor, Bubba from uh, Forrest Gump, yes. is one of their superiors there. He tells Clooney, this is a war that's been played on the media. Or this is a war that, a media war basically. And so the, the importance of these reporters here, basically, they're the ones that are driving the narrative and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, David o. Russell, I get it. But did you have to do it in such a disrespectful way? Do you really think that we believe that there were soldiers having sex with reporters? That is impossible. You know what? That was the war. There is no way that that, that happened. So again, it's insulting to my intelligence. It's insulting to our troops. It's just a mess from the beginning. As the party begins to rage, Chief Elgin steps in to notify them that the colonel's on his way. Chief Elgin played by the incomparable Ice Cube here. This is where the, the real rock, the real Dwayne Johnson of the film shows up. His little fun fact is that he's on a four-month paid vacation from Detroit. So in addition to just, you know, making kind of a trivialization of the Gulf War, 
David o. Russell takes this opportunity just to completely knock the city of Detroit. Yes, it's just it's just a well aimed dig in the first five minutes of the movie. Detroit sucks, and every time you cut to uh, you have little flashbacks to what their lives used to be. Ice Cube's is the one that sucks the most. <laughs> he works at an airport throwing luggage and in, into the uh, carts that go to the planes. It's just it, he's miserable there. To be fair, Detroit is a shit city, but this is not the time or place to air that grievance, o. Russell. It's the morning after the big party, and they are interrogating the last of the Iraqi soldiers and stripping them and just kind of just trying to make sure that they're of zero threat any further when one of them refuses to strip so they forcefully take his clothes off and conrad discovers that he has a piece of paper lodged in his butt uh yeah so this is where basically there is no argument that this is not a comedy you cannot start a movie a serious war drama where a guy has what turns out to be a map stuck up his ass that is a comedy that is you know seth rogan would be the guy that finds the map and maybe jonah hill would be the guy that that's forced to pull the map out and james franco is the guy that Who has the map in his butt <laughs> yes yeah exactly no 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 that would be a, a smaller player that would be like jay baruchel martin star martin star yeah one of the no franco would be the Clooney character okay mark Wahlberg comes over and tells him to take it out he gives him one latex glove to pull it out it's quickly known as the iraqi ass map and they're trying to figure out exactly what it is. Then we just get this kind of meandering scene of Clooney and them driving in a pickup truck, shooting Nerf footballs on the desert side. Well, there's two things that, that happen here. One is that I guess Clooney's supposed to, because he's experienced one here, he's supposed to be showing them the reality of war. Because the thing is that none of those the other three have seen actual combat. That was one of the things that they mentioned that... The first time that uh, they saw anybody get shot was when Wahlberg shot that guy at the beginning of the movie. Which, again, goes back to, like, oh, the Iraq war was, you know, so weird. And, yeah. and, and So there's that going on. But also, I guess Russell is trying to make this weird point about war, about how, like, nothing makes sense. They end up stopping. For some reason, they stop in front of a cow, including the size that it's a, be- it's a good time for them to practice how they're going to behave whenever they get to the, the bunker that they're looking for you already have like the nonsense with the with the footballs before and now he tells them okay you're gonna drive the jeep straight up to the cow and you're gonna stop right before you're hitting it and then you're gonna spread out and whatever but then the cow gets spooked and it steps on a landmine and it blows up and there's chunks of cow flying everywhere and this is a comedy <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not a serious war drama again in case you need more points uh, more pointers about that that's it's the perfect sign that this is a comedy but it amounts to nothing it, it, no. it, it really doesn't doesn't do anything in the as far as it doesn't make sense from the character's point of view like why would they do that and it also sets up something that doesn't pay off and that's the uh racial tension and also like the butting of heads between conrad's character and chief elgin they're having like disputes about what positions blacks play best in football and you think it's going to lead to them bonding and having like this big double team moment in the end and it no doesn't. it's just some more cheap racial humor from david russell while the some bach plays in the background yes yeah, and it pays off. Like the the thing with the football pays off later in the movie. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. But when it pays off, it's just it's it's still racially offensive. It is, and yeah. It, so get ready for the end where nothing really pays <laughs> off. So basically, what's happened is Gates has convinced them or figured out. I wasn't able. To, I, at first, I thought he was just like feeding them bullshit that the ass map was uh, to a series of bunkers in Karbala where the gold that was stolen from Kuwait was hidden. 
it just sounds the whole premise of the movie is so outlandish and they present it to you as if it's something that well of course this would happen that it, it just it confuses you when it's happening because everybody that hears about the story takes it seriously you know Ice Cube and uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg and Spike Jones are very much into it from the very beginning as soon as they get the map they're like oh this must be the lost gold of, of Saddam mm-hmm. and then Clooney and his reporter when they hear about it they instantly know like oh I know what's, what's going on at, at no point did they question the fact that this map could be completely fake yeah. how do you know that during the 100 Hundred Iraqi soldiers walking around with maps stuck up their asses, just trying to throw the American troops off. It is a comedy, after all. Exactly. Why well, it wouldn't surprise me, but no, they take it dead seriously. And so Clooney decides to lose his his news person tail and just run off. It really feels like a Russell watched Platoon and then the Goonies back to back and then came up with this movie. I really like these two movies. I think these two movies could work together and that way you can only watch one instead of having to watch two of them. As they're going over the maps and figuring out, you know, mapping out, no pun intended, their trails and where they're going to go, it leads to Spike Jones, of course, improving the uh, Bible hymn, We Three Kings. Does Russell have a seri- uh, history of his the title of his, of his movies being said in the movies? I know that I'm sure at some point in The Fighter, Mark Wolver said, hey, I'm the fighter. I'm sure Silver Linings Playbook has to have – I think De Niro says something about – towards the end, he's, he says something about Silver Linings. A, a lot of things happen in Silver Linings <laughs> Playbook that I don't remember. I remember in American Hustle, Jennifer Lawrence is like, hey, it's American Hustle. <laughs> So the three, or I guess four at this point, begin their quest to find this gold. They storm the first bunker that they had on their map, and they're there on the pretense that they have a, a ceasefire from President Bush that also says they are within their rights to confiscate anything that was stolen from Kuwait. Yes. Again, movie, are you telling me that this is how things went down in Iraq? Because I do not believe you. Basically, because we were, we've reached some sort of truce there with Iraq, then that means that Clooney, Wahlberg, Ice Cube, and Spike Jones are free to do whatever they want as long as they don't bother anybody else. So they can go in and they literally can cause minor destruction in and, and, and their search for the lost gold. As long as they don't mess with the insurrection that's going on in Iraq, yeah. then, then everything is cool. I just don't buy it. There is absolutely no way that that's how how things play out. Unless this is a a really crazy comedy. But, of course, in a little while we're going to see a woman get shot in the head. So (laughs) that's not what this is. Yeah, at that second bunker they go to, uh, they just are going to take $23 million worth of gold. And they're just like, hey, just take it. Just as long as you don't mess with us. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make sense. So the second bunker they go to is the one where they find gold. They find a, a long hallway of, like rolling suitcases and some of them have silverware in and some of them have watches in them and then some of them just have these giant gold bars in them yeah it was it was very uh it was distracting to say the least i don't think david russell realized how little story he had and <laughs> and then suddenly 20 25 minutes into the movie they they reach the gold they find the gold and then he's like well shit i have a short film right now i, I need to send it into an actual movie so what happens after they find the gold is just the movie contriving to to keep its running time at least over 90 minutes well you skipped like one of the easiest pratfall jokes in the entire movie these guys are smart enough to figure out this map they found in this guy's rectal cavity but they didn't piece together that these gold bars that weigh 
probably 10 pounds each. They put about 20 of them in a fabric suitcase, and they lift it up thinking it's going to carry it. rips out and falls on their feet. I mean, <laughs> a Russell was going all out here. Yeah, yeah. He's. I think, I honestly think maybe one of the reasons why the movie is so tonally all over the place and story-wise all over the place is that the initial idea was just a short, and that was a comedy. And then once he ran out of story there and he realized he needed to make a feature, then he just went off into the darkest aspect of, of, of this story. And he and then people started dying and getting tortured, and then it stopped being a comedy. It mirrors the Judd Aptow approach, where a comedy can only hit like a 90-minute mark at the most. And afterwards... You have so much dead air to fill, right? And where Judd Aptow just takes that in a very boring, reductive, voyeuristic way, uh, or Russell just took it in the most offensive, <laughs> racist way that he could. He was like, "Let's electrocute Marky Mark now." But yeah, like we said just a moment ago, as they're leaving, the Iraqi military has no problem with them confiscating all these things, just as long as they don't mess with the Iraqi rebels or, uh, of course, shoot anybody. Yeah, it's it's such a convoluted setup that at some point, like like shortly after they leave the village, I think like that that first time, the movie actually stops so George Clooney can explain to his friends and the audience what the hell is going on. Because, I was just waiting for him to look at the camera and break the fourth wall. <laughs> right, Wahlberg is like, I don't understand what's going on, and Clooney goes, "Well, let me tell you." <laughs> And then he basically tells them, hey, you know, the Iraqis thought that we were fighting for them, but really we weren't, and now they're pissed, and now there's a civil war going on, but we're not going to mess with it, and blah, blah, blah. Talk about convenience and, like, a wonder where the plot would have gone if this didn't happen. But at that bunker was the anti-Saddam descendant rebel leader. The gentleman was there with his family. And as they're getting ready to leave, as the three kings are getting ready to leave, the Iraqi soldiers take it upon themselves to shoot his wife. And I think they were just fucking around. Yeah, it, it's really, it comes out of nowhere because they already won. I mean, uh, our guys has to go have the gold. They're about, they're ready to leave, like you said. And then they just like, Clooney has this moment where he kind of looks and he's like, well, this sucks. Yeah. This sucks for these people. Maybe, maybe I'm not a horrible person like the movie has been painting me up to this point. <laughs> maybe I really am an American and I should, I, I should do something about this. And then because he has that moment, I guess uh, in order to hurry him up, they shoot the guy's yeah, wife. And I, I, it took a woman getting gunned down in cold blood for George Clooney to like rethink his life's decisions. Yeah, but it's like, it, it's so stupid. Again, it's not only a poor portrayal of our troops but also it, this happened several times throughout the movie the Iraqi army is the stupidest army ever in the world they get as fooled. it's painted in this movie yeah as it's painted in this movie what made them think that shooting a woman in the head would not escalate the situation <laughs> <laughs> so uh, naturally it does and Clooney you know it's like oh F this and goes over to the the leader of the Iraqi troop on site there and they're having it out with words and he says, cover me, and there wouldn't have been more of a movie if that woman hadn't been shot in the head. Yep, they would have driven away with the gold, and then everything the would have... The theme to The Magnificent Seven would have started playing. Yep, it cut to just them bathing in uh, liquid gold and eating goldfishes. It would, it, no, it would have been something racist-driven. Oh, yeah, 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 like Ice Cube with wings. Yeah. And the other thing that happens that is, is yet another thing that doesn't really pay off is early on in the movie, Clooney makes it a point to tell everybody... We do not shoot. And you think that that's going to be something that's going to pay off throughout the entire movie. 
But right around the time that that woman gets shot, he's just like, screw it. And, and then they start shooting everybody. It's a new movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, this is where, where the original short ended. <laughs> and I was like, well, new rules. So basically, it just becomes an almost Natural Born Killers-esque shootout. This is the most hyper-stylized scene in the film. Yeah, I, I know we had our disagreement about Natural Born Killers. I don't know how you felt about this, but I wrote, this is the most boring shootout I've ever seen. Because really what takes place in like i don't know 10 seconds mm-hmm. it just stretches to like five minutes of slow motion bullets and uh, these kind of half-assed freeze frames of, of like who's getting shot or who's not getting shot it, there's just no drama to it at all well absolutely not i mean mark Wahlberg gets hit but you're there's no way that they kill mark Wahlberg yeah. this early on this is david russell it's not uh i don't know i'm not sure or, or west craven yeah so naturally the americans win and then they free the uh rebels the iraqi rebels so they're taking them away just as a tank pulls up, an Iraqi military tank. And this is obviously where we go off in a new direction because they begin firing gas into the air that blinds and you know almost suffocates all of them. So Conrad's driving them away and he careens off into a minefield and it's just chaos from there. It becomes an action movie. What was originally just kind of offensive but relatively harmless comedy about four individual soldiers going AWOL to look for gold and all the stuff, then now it's become an action movie that's not particularly good at being an action movie. It's no longer funny. And it ends up painting an even more damning portrayal of, of the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Because by now, starting now and all the way till the end, the things that the Army does, not just Clooney and his group, but Baba and like, the other the other people that start searching they're for him. They're hapless, man. They can't figure out their ass from a hole in the ground. They're, they're hapless, but then also it's clear that no matter what side you're in, these people don't give a shit about anybody. <laughs> it's terrible. The, the point that, that Russell keeps hammering over and over is that it's every man to himself and Clooney and Mark Wolver and everybody else, they make the mistake of caring for, for these people for like mm-hmm. half a second and then they live to regret that for the rest of the movie. But not only that, I, mean, I think that's in a way because he's painting them ultimately as the heroes, he's encouraging soldiers to be rebellious. And that's not that's not the best thing that you could do uh, when it comes to the army. I mean, there's a reason why there's a chain of command and there's orders to be to be followed. So it's a mess. It's it's just a mess, no matter where you which way you see it. And you would think that might pay off later on in the movie. But... Oh no no no, it doesn't. <laughs> it was just it just felt like Russell was like, you know what? I'm angry. I'm angry at the war. I'm gonna write something about it. Dude, I have this little piece of trivia about the movie afterward that's so awesome. <laughs> so during this, two of the children of the Iraqi rebels that were with them take off running out of terror as naturally children would do when Mark Wahlberg Troy goes to save them. Uh, upon saving them, he is captured and beaten down by members of the Iraqi military and taken as a hostage. The others of the crew are helped by the Iraqi rebels and led to like an underground base, I think it was. Yeah, between the fact that this takes place in the desert and they've been shooting gas at them, so it's all like there's gas and sand and everybody's wearing masks or turbans around their heads. It literally looks like sunset on Tatooine. Yes, exactly. And you don't know what the hell's going on. So once again, poor George Clooney is forced to explain what the hell's going on. (laughs) Because as a viewer, you can't tell, like, who are the good Iraqis that are helping them and who are the bad ones. Because first... Who are the Jawas and who are the Tuscan Raiders? Exactly. I see Wahlberg get dragged out, and I'm just like, okay, so... 
he got captured. But then the same, they look exactly the same. They, they're helping Clooney, and Clooney is like, oh, they're helping us. So then I'm thinking, okay, so no, maybe they just helped Wahlberg. But then Clooney later has to explain, no, he was taken. I, I wonder if all that was ADR afterwards when, you know, the movie was over and they played it. And I'm like, guys, we don't know what's going on. Bring Clooney in. Their time with Clooney was very limited on this because he was literally doing this half the week and ER the other half of the week. <laughs> they they probably asked him to show up and he's like, fuck you guys. I'll do it over the phone. Where's, so- where's my sex scene with Judy Greer? <laughs> <laughs> that was his compromise. There you go. Uh, we get a little bit of foreshadowing. I, don't, I know you're not a fan of the... Uh, I guess it was 2007 re-release of 310 to Yuma. I know you're not. A I am not. But we get a little, you know, precursor to that here with the bro love between Conrad and Troy. That's very reminiscent of that of Russell Crowe and Ben Foster in 310 to Yuma. I can definitely see that. I can see that, and I, that was not a problem I had with the movie with 310 to Yuma. So well, yeah. no, I'm just saying, like. I basically say that because Ben Foster and Conrad look a lot alike here in these two different parts. Yeah, so. I keep trying to figure out who Spike Jones reminded me of in this movie. Uh, sometimes it was Owen Wilson, but but I think the voice was. I still I haven't been able to place it. But he's freaking out because they let his best friend go and like his hero. He's yelling at everybody and you know just causing a scene here. Yeah, it gets so bad that he gets into a fight with Ice Cube, which is something you would never do if you were in your right mind. Yeah, and again building the tension between them that you think is going to pay off. And like a good moment of friendship later nope. on. Sorry, we're just spoiling the movie relentlessly, but that's because it just doesn't lead to anything. Well, yeah, if there was a carefully constructed plot that, that shouldn't be spoiled because there's all these setups and payoffs, no, we're actually saving you from the suspense of like, oh, where is this, where is this leading? Don't worry, it's not leading anywhere. So we go then back to Troy, who's in a chair. He's tied up. Uh, he's clearly a hostage. He's in a sp- uh, suit jacket. Was that explained at all, why they dressed him up? I guess what's not explained is why they stripped him out. They stripped him down from his clothes, and then they threw him into a, a room, and he's like, just get dressed, get dressed. And so, because that's the room where there were, like, the cell phones and all this other stuff that I guess they've, they've looted. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he just grabbed, like, a bunch of clothes from, from that room. As he's originally taken hostage, they strip him and throw him into just this room of just random shit, and in it is a big box of cell phones that they didn't take the time at all to, like, figure out if they work or not. Um, like, hardcore old cell phones the yeah. ones that were like the size of your head big bricks so. yes of course the way o russell portrays the iraqi army in this they might have thought they were pop tarts for all they know so uh mark Wahlberg just grabs one that doesn't work he grabs another one it does work uh he calls an iraqi operator trying to be connected to the, the u.s military and so that doesn't work so so he so he smashes that cell phone that works and goes looking for another one like like what you're gonna get a better operator if you get a different a different cell phone that doesn't make any sense but then he finds a cell phone from you know 1991 that's able to reach back to the united states and he calls his wife and just gives her his location and says hey you know send this to the army this might help yeah it's it's such a cliche scene to begin with the, the whole oh i'm a soldier that's gonna call my wife from from the heat of battle because of course she is talking to him like he is at the airport or something she has no idea she's carrying the baby because of course we have to remember that he has a baby and he's trying to reassure her that everything is going to be okay well there's soldiers banging on the door because i guess they figure out he's on the phone and there's the base is under attack because at some point a wall blows blows up and it's just so so cheesy and contrived you know i'm we've had our issues with clint eastwood but he had a very similar scene in uh, american sniper a couple of years ago and and that worked a lot better it was a lot more pared down it was 
for one, that movie was not trying to be a comedy, so it didn't trivialize it. So I've heard. It, yeah, no, it, it's guilty of many things, but not of trivializing the the danger that our troops are constantly in <laughs> when they're in foreign soil. So yeah, it was it's just tasteless. Quick sidebar here. The way O'Russell wrote this movie and his four main characters, they are all the first person to die in a Vietnam movie. There's the black guy, the guy who's got two weeks away from retirement, the southern boy who's with no education who's just way too happy to be there, and the you know the young buck who's got his hot wife and his newborn baby, and he's just ready to get home to him. And why? I mean, I was going to wait till later, but no, I, re- I might as well ask it now. Why is it three kings instead of four kings? They're very clearly a group of four. I mean, I'm assuming that the person that's getting left out is Spike Jones, just because he was not a name. Because it would be the way that the movie plays... I could also make the argument that they're excluding uh, Ice Cube just yeah. because Russell has that that sort of he is the one that's not part of the group most of the time. He goes off on his own to pray, and even at the very end, he's he's I don't know. It doesn't feel like he's part of the group uh, uh, the way that the others are. So I don't have an answer for you. Well, I mean, this movie does tell you that there are no answers. <laughs> no, all roads lead nowhere. <laughs> But as we said, we have a randomly dressed Mark Wahlberg tied up in a chair as the Iraqi captain interrogators, Saeed. I'm really bad at pronouncing foreign names. Uh, This is actually, to me, the best scene in the movie because it's really well acted and presented, I felt. He's beginning to torture, electrocute Mark Wahlberg, but he does it. He's explaining that Americans are hypocrites. And, you know, Americans are America is such a fucked up country that they made Michael Jackson hate the black man so much that he became a white man, which... Okay, as much as I, I said the scene's well acted, and it's it is that is such a topical reference to work into a movie. But can you don't tell me you can't see or Russell just his chest swelling with just pride salivating. once he came up once he came up with that idea. I can mention Michael Jackson and use it as an analogy for it's just like U.S. He, racism altogether. It's like when he wrote the opening of American Hustle. It's like. Christian Bale's going to be fat and he's going to be combing his hair. These people are going to love it. <laughs> I can see how on first impression it can seem like a good scene because, I mean, Wahlberg, he can be a good actor mm-hmm. and the guy that's interrogating him, he's also good and, and the setting. And- well, it's the only point in the movie, too, where any motivations are clear. The, the guy explains the reason he does what he does and hates Americans is because his little boy was killed during the Baghdad bombings. Right, but it's just so overwrought and so it's just not subtle at all, at all. like like everything not, else uh, that I, I mean because they they cut he's telling that story and they keep cutting to to Walbury thinking of his wife and mm-hmm. thinking of his kid and i was like we get it yeah he's, he also has a kid he's thinking of them that it, gentleman it, the said he he's just really good like in this scene he presents like his dialogue right really you well. could argue that this may be the only scene in the movie where the iraqis are not portrayed as just these one dimensional monsters <laughs> monsters they have actual <laughs> like motivation right oh they're human beings too it's like russell doesn't trust his actors and hence the the cutting to Wahlberg's little flashbacks mm-hmm. and and also in the end it's not just that it's preachy, but that it takes this approach because Wahlberg, out of the four, he's the one that's the least in touch with the human element, you could say, mm-hmm. right? Because back when they rescued all the villagers, Wahlberg was the one that was like, let's just go with the gold. We don't need to take care of these people. And then he gets tortured here. He basically gets electrocuted. They wire his ears and then they, they electrocute him. And again, 
to hell with spoilers because this movie sucks. But later on, by the time that they finally rescue him, he he's changed his mind. And it's basically telling you the only way that you can change the mind of an American soldier that's programmed to, to just be as horrible as we say in this movie is by frying his brain and basically lobotomizing him. So it's it's a very cynical unsympathetic view of soldiers in general, I believe. Back to the crew of Clooney, Spike Jones, and Ice Cube, Elgin. They are led to the Iraqi deserters army, the group of Iraqis who the rebels who actually have like military force and uh, weaponry and in a very classic David O. Russell trope of, hey, everything's working out just perfectly. They also have an entire line of luxury cars that after trying to like brainwash the Iraqi people into believing that George Bush needs their help, they're like, no, we want your money. These people are the worst. Clooney and Ice Cube, they're, they're just, they're like used car salesmen. The, the way that they just talk about America and freedom. Really, Bottom line it for me. Pretty much, yeah. I would, Dan Fogler and Josh Gatt right there trying to rescue Topher Grace. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And it's also just the setting of this because uh, they're 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 hiding in this sort of shrine and they're taking care of their their dead and they're just being very spiritual these these Iraqis that rescued them because of course they have to be the stereotypical spiritual people that are being oppressed there's again there's no shading here it, it was basically all they were missing was Morgan Freeman as their leader to be just the ultimate in enlightenment and it's like Avatar now, Clooney and Cube, and they're starting to realize, oh, these are people, too, that need our help. Yeah, yeah. Back at the base, Troy's wife was able to give out his location where this was the actual point in watching that we did confirm that uh, Colonel Horn is Bubba from Forrest Gump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you write it down? It's like, oh, yeah, it is Bubba. <laughs> in theory, the idea of Mark Wahlberg somehow being able to communicate with no one else but his wife back in the States and has his location, in theory, that's interesting but like the way it turned out george clooney and them didn't even need to know where he was they right they didn't they they, they figured on their own he mark Wahlberg just fucked up by calling his wife because so, yeah. she she talks to baba and then baba comes and busts him later on so it, a bunch of roads that just lead in giant circles pretty yeah. much uh this next part they make mark Wahlberg drink motor oil that was pretty crazy <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember how sympathetic we made this guy? Okay, forget about that. They're monsters. Yeah, after doing all that, it's just erased by they pry his mouth open with a couple of CD cases and force motor oil down his throat. They're uh, Michael Jackson CDs, probably. <laughs> no shading it here. The basic idea between the now three kings of Conrad, Archie, and Elgin is to rig up these luxury cars they have to make them seem as though they are Saddam's men, Saddam's escort. And they're going to, you know, just plan on riding into this bunker, this base. And the idea is that they're going to scare all the people away, thinking all the military there away, thinking that, oh, God, Saddam's here to kill us all. So we should just abandon the base. Right. Which it would never work. It would never. In a serious movie, there is no way that you could just put a couple of flags on a car and just make somebody believe that that's them Hussein coming to kill everybody. This is like the part in Ocean's 12 where they have Julia Roberts pretend to be Julia Roberts. Yes, I think this is a moment where like he was writing it and he was like, I do not know how to get Mark Wahlberg out of this pickle. So, guys, I need ideas. I need ideas. And he's like, five-year-old kid. He's like, why don't they pretend that the president's coming to kill them? As bad as this is, it's still not as bad as the, well, I don't know how to get Christian Bale out of this pickle, so I'm just going to have Jennifer Lawrence sing Live and Let Die. <laughs> 
I don't have anything to cut to. So let's let's have a musical number with Jennifer Lawrence. Just absolute side part that is still one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie. Dude, if you ever want to get all worked up about about anything, just just watch her singing that song, and you just like. Ah. We get on the car ride there some more bonding between Conrad and Elgin as they're trying to decipher what music to listen to on the way there. Conrad wants to listen to some heavy metal, and Elgin says, "No, you need some, you know, some relaxing, laid-back music." And he's like, "Well, I'll listen to that." So Elgin sarcastically puts in an Iraqi album that's just, you know, very stereotypical. And again, this would be a cute scene if there's any kind of payoff coming up. There isn't, and you're right. I had I've forgotten about that. They really actually make you think that this is leading somewhere. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if, if we've ever talked about the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Have you seen it? That's kind of, maybe, no? A little bit. Okay, well, you know you know Orlando I Bloom is life. in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Orlando Bloom is a, uh, an elf, and then there's a dwarf played by, I don't know, the guy that plays uh, from Indiana Jones movies. Anyway, yeah, there's a dwarf and an elf, and they have that kind of relationship where they keep just getting on each other's nerves, and they're very competitive and whatever. And you're like, this is three movies. It's not even just one movie. Through three movies, there is some sort of buildup. You're like, what's going to happen at the end? Are they going to shake hands? Are they going to kiss? What's happening? It just By the time you get to the third movie, it's just diluted so much that they just it doesn't happen. Like Nothing happens with it. At some point, it just stops mattering. And that's kind of... It doesn't take nine hours like in Lord of the Rings, but this is what happens with uh, with Ice Cube and, and Spike Jonze. They just – they're a little back and forth. It goes nowhere. Yeah, and it could. It could lead to something cool. Uh, when they get to the building, I think they temporarily push everyone back, but then the military just realizes, wait, no. And then so it just turns into another random gunfire scene. Yeah, I, I really couldn't follow what – because, yeah, they, they scare everybody off with the flags. They run away. And then somehow, like, reinforcements arise or something. Because there's a helicopter shooting at them at some point. Which, what made me laugh is that George Clooney conveniently misses the entire fight with the helicopter. He's like, guys, you take care of this. I'm going to go rescue my Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, I had little flow to this here. It's just that, again, David O'Russell thing of, I'll just present it as everything's cute and bubbly. So you won't be actually paying attention to the fact that there's, like, massive plot holes and also... Like what's going on right here doesn't really like make that much sense. Yeah, it just that helicopter shows up and then and then at in some the point, end it just turned out that them they were just literally just driving up there and just like literally just driving in for battle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it ends up being a firefight just like like all the others in the in the movie and uh, he has one shot at some point where you see the guys that were running away. And then one of the guys is the George Clooney of the Iraq side that has to explain things. He goes like, hey, there's a helicopter. We should go back. We should go back. And then him and one other guy come back. And then they turn the tide, I guess. During this firefight, we get what was the closest to the Elgin and Conrad bonding. It's a Nerf football souped up with C4 that uh, Elgin throws a perfect spiral at the helicopter that's up there. And as you said earlier in the podcast, it, of course almost culminates but doesn't but when it does it's something that's racially driven right i'll leave it to the black guy to throw the ball perfectly to the helicopter obviously troy is rescued by gates uh he comes in kills everybody fairly easily it's silly because he opens the door and then they all just stare at him and yeah i mean they had him they were more of them he was he was overpowered but they just let like three armed Iraqis let themselves get shot by George Clooney. He frees Troy, gives Troy a gun as Saeed, his captor, his torturer, lays on the ground in agony after being shot in the leg by Gates. Troy points the gun at his head and then just points it at the wall and unloads the clip. Kind of like a lot of things in this movie, if it had been properly built and told, this would have been a 
fitting scene for him to spare his captor. But since everything was just kind of rushed through and there was only like 20 seconds to build any sympathy for him, there's... Well, yeah, especially sympathy that was undermined because, like you said, they made him drink motor oil. Yeah. That's the last thing you saw they were doing to Mark Wahlberg. If somebody made me drink motor oil and I was still alive, fuck that. I just shoot everybody. <laughs> Wahlberg is delirious at this point, though. I think the motor oil's kicked in, and also he just hasn't eaten in a while. He looks pretty gaunt. This is <laughs> Marky Mark at his finest just with his... Most cliche type delivery. Say hi to your mother for me. Yeah, exactly. But it it is kind of just out of place because it, it's genuinely funny, but it doesn't have any cognizance as to what else is going on. Yeah, again, it's a movie switching gears to comedy for no real reason. He comes out and he recognizes the guy that they saved all the way back in the other village and, and asks about his little girl. And it just, it's just completely out of tune with everything else that's going on uh, in the movie. It's, it's off-putting. But Troy's looking around for Conrad and they eventually lock eyes and they run at one another like, you know, Noah and Allie in the notebook. Conrad is shot by the the George Clooney of the Iraqi side. <laughs> yes, who, who... you were talking about how the uh, about Platoon earlier, and yeah, this is like the, the Willem Dafoe moment in Platoon. A lot less dramatic, a lot less earned. Yeah, Conrad is shot. Troy helps him over, lays him down, gets up asking for some help. You know, just stands up. Can we get some fucking help? He gets shot in the lung and falls down. He is shot by the Mark Wahlberg of the Iraqis, <laughs> the Bizarro. Clooney and Ice Cube are immediately over, and they put a flutter valve in his lung to help him breathe and release the air pressure. During all this, Conrad dies, and it's kind of sad because he's the most... I think the character you kind of grow the most attached to because he's the least scumbaggy because he just is like a doofus. He doesn't really lie. He's the most transparent about how he feels. He's racist like everybody else in the movie, but but at least in his case, you, there's no malice. I think he's just kind of stupid. But not just that. I think that out of all of them, he was the one that was the most entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is kind of like just mean-spirited or or boring or kind of a weasel. But in his case, whenever you saw him, he, he would just make things lively. And he dies with no fanfare, no big glorious death or anything You like would that. think that he would die trying to save Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. That would make it, oh, yes. okay, so now it makes sense. Yeah. This is why we're building up to the whole thing. But no, no, in fact, he dies and Ice Cube is the least affected out of all of them. <laughs> so it led to nothing. And for the only character to really die in the movie as far as on the American side anyone you'd be attached to you'd think it'd have a little bit more you know what I realized we've kind of completely skipped with good reason I guess but in a way the whole uh, subplot of Jamie Kennedy and the reporter (laughs) yeah I was about to get to that because what happens next is Archie Gates arranges for Walter Jamie Kennedy to pick them up for transportation and to bring Nora Dunn the reporter with them because this whole time they've been he instructed Jamie Kennedy to basically keep her just busy and distracted, right? Right, except that at some point she just figured out that he was fucking around with her and she took over in, in nothing because really <laughs> her, her decision, her her taking over from Jamie Kennedy and, you know, getting behind the wheel of the Humvee and whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't lead anywhere because they're still driving around until Clooney calls. Yeah. So basically you could have cut them out of the movie until this point and everything would be the same. Yeah. But, of course, you need someone to come pick him up in the car. And, yeah, I didn't even think of that because I kind of just was distracted and not paying attention. But every time they're on the screen, it's nothing. 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 They have a moment where they run across uh, some uh, birds that are covered in oil. 
and uh, you know there's like an oil spill somewhere and the birds are just all covered in oil and she gets all choked up at the same time she's saying well I already covered this story this story is not news whatever and you're like okay well, Russell I get it uh, the media the media has no attention span the media doesn't care blah 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 but it's still it's just so better constructed movie this would probably land much better but as it is it's just it's just another element of this mess that doesn't really lead anywhere and Jamie Kennedy and Nora Dunn have zero chemistry absolutely there is there is a moment when they're sitting together and he's trying to like make a move on her it doesn't work some of the gold is distributed to the rebels that help them defeat the army there and then the intention at this point is to get to the Iranian border to free the rebels but there's the Iraqi guards standing on the border so the U- their plan is for them as the US military to help escort them across it's so weird to i mean i understand this is 20 years ago more than that but it's still to see that Iran was in a way like the haven <laughs> you know what i mean yeah <laughs> it's, it's just weird but yeah that's that's the way it was back then the Gulf War was a very interesting and a no good way type thing. They get to the border and like any massive cliche, they're about a hundred yards away from it when the American officers show up. Uh, Bubba's there and everyone else in the the crew. They're there to arrest the three kings for I guess they were going AWOL and also uh, they broke the law because they broke the ceasefire and they're also not supposed to aid in the the exile of any of these rebels. If, in case you were not paying attention when uh, when George Clooney kind of explained what was going on, then Bubba gets to give you one more refresher now when he steps out of the helicopter. So they arrest Ice Cube, George Clooney, and Mark Wahlberg, and Mark Wahlberg's flutter valve needs to be released. And this was like one of the most enjoyable parts of the movie because the man monitoring him and arresting him was Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> and we were both just like, is that Jim Gaffigan? It's, it's so weird because I'd seen him earlier in the movie... I, I told you, I saw some guy, some blonde guy that kind of looked like Jim Gaffigan, completely in the background, had absolutely nothing to do. And I think, now I have a theory, which is because the, the, the whole thing with Devolve and, and Wahlberg kind of not being able to breathe, it leads nowhere. Five minutes of, of suspense that leads nowhere. He's basically choking to death, and he's screaming, and nobody's paying attention to him, until finally Gaffigan realizes that okay i guess this is serious and then he cuts him cuts him free and lets him save himself and then everything is exactly the way it was before so again you could take that scene away and everything is the same so my theory is that they cast jim gaffigan and whatever he had to do in the movie got cut and then they're like well he needs to do something in the movie otherwise why do we have jim gaffigan here so they had him save mark wolverine this scene that could completely be removed which is kind of confirmed by the credits because his character doesn't have a name in the credits (laughs) in the credits he's he's like the guy that that cuts control is free so he can save himself. Meanwhile, Adriana is, of course, having all this filmed because George Clooney had the foresight. I guess it was all part of his plan all along, like any Oceans movie. So they're arresting them, and Clooney says, look, we know where the gold is. And Bubba's like, bullshit. Basically, they agree to give up the gold if the people can go free. So I think what he was trying to say was they learned a lesson. The Americans learned a lesson that everyone are people, too. And Right, but the only reason they learn the lesson is because they got caught yeah so it's not there's no point in this movie where Clooney is being completely selfless because if he hadn't gotten caught and he had just let them keep the gold that's one thing but no that's just his only way out of this this jam so but then they're not even caught because they get honorably discharged because of Adriana's reporting which doesn't even make any sense because Clooney just fucked her on stories she just had like five minutes of footage that was incriminating of the US military but he just led her astray with his bumpkin for the entire course of the 
the film. And again, ultimately, what is this saying about the U.S. Army? Because again, it just becomes this this sort of a game of, of who's keeping the gold. There's absolutely zero concern about the lives of of these Iraqi <laughs> refugees, even Clooney. It almost feels like the main reason he wants to get them to the border is because, well, I promise. Like he even tells Baba, you know, it's it's a soldier's honor. I gave my word. It's not that hey, these people they're gonna have a better life over there they're gonna have a chance of surviving no it's just like hey i said i would so don't make me look bad bro and initially when they're all before the army shows up when they're all heading over the border they're carrying conrad's body but after the military shows up it's not revealed what actually happens to his body. right they have him wrapped in this white sheet so it's very easy to spot and then after after they almost get arrested and then get arrested for good it just it just goes away but as i said they're honorably discharged and everyone lives happily ever after as u2 starts to play elgin and gates went to work in the movies and Troy opened up his own carpet store. With what money? Because they didn't keep any of the gold. No. So what is this? This is just, oh, well, because we need a happy ending. So I guess. And the reporter, we get a card for her too, right? She she won an Emmy, I guess. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I don't quite remember either. Well, I mean, at this point, if you've seen enough David Russell movies, then you know that it's just it's all about the happy endings, yeah. no matter what. Logic be damned. And of course, I guess in his defense, logic be damned the entire movie in this case. No, <laughs> no, nothing gets a proper follow through. There's there's no uh, no connective tissue between scenes. I think the other thing I wrote down, <laughs> I just looked over my notes. I realized it was a, it's not just the woman getting shot in the head earlier. Like signaling that, hey, we're into a different movie now. It's also, I don't know if you remember, like there's a little kid at the top of a building shooting at them out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. And he and gets they, shot they, by a tank. Yeah, they blow him up. <laughs> just in case they didn't realize that, hey, we're done with the laughter now. <laughs> now, now it's just, it's serious. We're going to, we killed a woman. We're killing a child. It ended. And I just had this, this bad taste in my mouth of just this very... Fucked up conflict, uh, this very fucked up time in history, just being ridiculed and trivialized in a way. You're just saying, in one single movie, you're saying, fuck the troops, fuck the war, fuck the media, fuck it. Okay, but what are you standing for? The bars of gold? I mean... But you're also, you have a movie where the opening where Judy Greer is getting fucked by George Clooney, they're like, who's her military escort? And they point to this fat, ugly woman who is supposed to be it, and Nora Dunn's like, can we get her someone she won't fuck? All those in the same movie? Yeah, it, it's just, again, I, I go back to what I said earlier. I think Russell was just, just mad. He just vomited on the page and then got a bunch of actors. And like, hey, this will be good because, you know, it's about the war, and it's, it's I got something to say, guys. Let's <laughs> join me. And then I guess, you know, he fooled however high percentage of uh, critics. 94%. Yay! <laughs> Let's do some real talk. This I have I have uh, different points to make. <laughs> t-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers: Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart goes to Montreal, some dead guy, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling. SmartsLikeUs.com. 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 Selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available: buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. Here we go. All right. So Three Kings was released on October 1st, 1999. Had a budget of $75 million for a box office of $107,755,036. It's that George Clooney power. Yeah. Those are like the numbers look a lot bigger side by side or different side by side, but that's not 
that much of a gain. It wasn't. It wasn't a big hit. I guess not. I mean, that's more money than I'll ever have in my life. But, <laughs> um, it was directed, as we said, by David Russell. It was originally written by John Ridley of Twelve Years a Slave fame. Yep, who originally wrote the screenplay under the title "Spoils of War," and that was bought by Universal, I believe. And David O. Russell just saw the one sentence sum- summation of it that said a heist based in the Gulf War, and so bought it and then wrote rewrote it everything. So it wasn't originally what John Ridley had written. And when it was bought, John Ridley thought he was going to like have a part in it. So he got kind of pissed and upset about it when he was blocked out from the movie being made. And he got he, when he finally saw the script, it was nothing like what he said. And a Russell's defense was his idea is just the germ of what I created or something like that. So um, originally he wasn't on the poster or anything, but then like through legal ramifications and stuff, he got a story by credit. So very similar to episode number 10, we were talking about Quentin Tarantino's story by credit on natural born killers. Right. I wonder, ah, man, you know, I've actually listened to like a lot of stuff about credits and you would think I would know the answer by now, but I think that, I would think story by is like the least you get if they bought your script, you know? You would think so. But maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, I don't know. If if he rewrote it completely and there's absolutely nothing there other than, hey, your summation made me think of this other story I could tell. I did see, though, he successfully legally blocked O'Russell from ever releasing the screenplay in like a novel form because a lot of people do that with big movies. That would have been a bestseller. (laughs) Andrew Ho from Film Written Magazine uh, who said, it's a breath of fresh air. But there's not enough to fill the room. Uh, Andrew Manning from Radio Free Entertainment. I think that's the third Andrew we've quoted in this episode. (laughs) uh, From Radio Free Entertainment said, This is one of the biggest play-it-safe Hollywood war movies ever made. Which I'm sure that's done. Because I think the movie's striving to be just unlike anything else you've ever seen. David Sterrett from Christian Size Monitor said, It hates God. No, it said uh, the overall... (laughs) It said, the overall shallowness of Three Kings is especially regrettable since so much genuine talent has gone into the picture. And finally, Chuck Rudolph from Madden Magazine uh, kind of hit the, the nail on the head when he said, uh, Fatch's exercise that takes his exciting premise and poisons it with boring characters, lifeless performances, and a general directorial stupidity. That's actually a little too harsh, on my opinion. Uh, you know, as far as I go, you know, but but I think it, it he he kind of gets closer to the way I feel about the movie. Uh, that would be harsh from my standpoint too, because he's expecting way too much from David or Russell. <laughs> oh, but you're forgetting this is like I didn't know this until I was going through the quotes. This is before even uh, I heard Huckabee's. He had done two movies before that, but not like he was not David or Russell. So I guess that's me like retroactively saying exactly. That's retroactive hate. So these bits of trivia that were just too good. Uh, this first one I did share with you while we were watching it. David Russell never wanted George Clooney for the lead role, accepting him only after his first choices, Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, Nicolas Cage, and Dustin Hoffman, all turned down the part. As a result, his relationship with Clooney was tense during filming, culminating in a fistfight after Clooney objected to the way Russell was treating an extra. After the premiere, Clooney said while he respected Russell's talent, he would never work with the director again. Pretty intense when... You- you're George Clooney and someone wants Nicolas Cage over you. Yeah, but I mean, that depends on how you feel about Nicolas Cage. I think Nicolas Cage, if he had been unleashed in this movie, can you imagine? <laughs> or Russell just telling him, go crazy. <laughs> that would have been a much more exciting movie. Clooney, a notorious prankster, played a prank on Nora Dunn by putting an apple on 
the antenna of a Humvee and catapulting it, hitting her in the face. The only <laughs> the only cast member Clooney did not prank was Ice Cube. Clooney said, "Cube's not going to take it. He doesn't have to. He's from South Central." <laughs> and lastly, this is this can't be true. This is just too insane. During the editing stages of the film, David O. Russell attended a fundraiser for George W. Bush at a Warner Brothers executive house. Russell walked up to Bush and said, Hi, I'm editing a film that will question your father's legacy in Iraq. Bush shot back, Well, I guess I'm going to have to go back there and finish the job. <laughs> so now you know who to blame. <laughs> David or Russell. Okay, that's also him giving himself way too much credit there, questioning his father's legacy in Iraq. Yeah, I me, mean, I don't know. I think... I don't think... Therein lies it's, it's Well, it's hard to... to Take yourself back to when this movie opened, especially because I, I just now, this is the first time I've seen it. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if it's kind of like this, but there's that uh, Matt Damon, Paul Greengrass movie. I think it's Paul Greengrass. Uh, Green Zone. And oh, yeah. So it's not a bad movie, but basically the main thing in the movie is Matt Damon finding out, figuring out that there were never any uh, weapons of mass destruction. It, which is like, we all knew that a long time ago, but the movie treats it as this huge revelation. It just, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's almost, it, it's comical when it finally happens in the movie because you keep waiting. I, the trailer alone told you that this is what the movie was going to be about. So, of course, you're expecting, okay, what's the second twist? You know, what happens that, that we don't know? But no, the movie is literally Matt Damon finding out what we found out five years ago. So, I think that maybe this could be a little bit like David Russell telling you, yeah, you know, it was a fucking mess back there. And we're like, no shit, we know that. You know, I, I don't know. It, it, it feels a, a movie like uh, like Jarhead, you know, which was also about, you know, soldiers being driven mad by the lack of action and and uh, just how weird war can be. That's a little more, I think, praiseworthy than Three Kings. And I'm not saying that the movie's terrible, but let's, let's see what you have to say. Up front, my biggest, right away, my biggest issue with it is it is such like, a trivialization of the Gulf War, which, granted, Gulf War, not as many people like Vietnam or the Iraq War died or anything like that, but still, like, a lot of women and children died, and it was a really, really fucked up thing, and it was a very short-lived thing, but it was really tragic for a lot of people, and this movie, that's just used as, like, a backdrop for it. Again, I was I was not following uh, like there's i've seen gulf war movies before that are obviously like i said you know are, are more interesting or whatever i i'm cool with it being a comedy that that kind of points out how absurd the whole thing is but it doesn't it more relies on just like ridiculous shenanigans but but even if you had ridiculous shenanigans all the way through then at least i'll be like okay i, I can roll with this uh the first 20 minutes or so of the movie i was in mm-hmm. it, you know oh okay so we're going we're doing this movie we're doing the movie where where we have the little title cards for the characters and it's just the style is very like oh in your face and and it's just ridiculous i mean the spike john's character is just <laughs> That okay, I can go with that movie, but but then it felt like it get it got caught up on trying to. It loses focus so many times. Right, it's it's like well, you know what? I'm saying this about the war, but I want to say this also, and I also want to say this, I also want to say this, and then it just it just got diffused. I well, that's also an O Russell thing. A lot of his movies have identity crises, crises, (laughs) crises. Uh, The Fighter, which is not good, but that's one of those things. It goes all over the place and Mickey Ward has an interesting life and stuff but at no point do you get a clear cut path of where it's going I think what David O. Russell does is he to me like outside looking in what I've seen 
He clearly has uh, ideas and visuals for what he wants because a lot of times he can deliver visually, but he doesn't think big picture. He thinks of just like individual scenes and little things that are going to happen, and then we'll somehow just stitch that together. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can actually, I can see that. There's uh, to me when you tell me the story of uh, these guys find a map, and that map is to some hidden treasure, and and then they kind of they leave the army to go look for that treasure. Okay, that's the movie. You don't need to. You don't need more. You know, less is more. If you, if he had stuck, if he had taken them, if I honestly, I expected them to visit like three different bunkers, and then they finally get the gold, and then they. Ha- but no, the, he got. He took care of that story pretty early on, and then it was just like other stuff. And-, and mind you, if they had stuck to the original guns, no pun intended, like if it was just silly, like George Clooney banging chicks and stuff like that. Yeah, it'd be kind of weird that the backdrop was the Gulf War, but at least it stuck to something, because this is one of those things is... And yeah, it does. It just paints Iraqi like Iraqi people as the worst possible people ever, and like you can't have any sympathy for them. The performances are good, but yeah, I just... I can't really get behind any of it, because it... I'm just... At no point was I invested in anything. Yeah, I kind of... I mean, I feel bad when Spike Jones died, for example, but, but it was just so... Such a, like, nothing death. Mm-hmm. There, there was... Again, there was no build-up to it. It just... You kind of got the feeling that he was going to die because somebody had to die, and... and you, He was like, uh... Bill Paxton in Day After Tomorrow. Who's Jake Gyllenhaal's dad in that? Is it... No, it's not Bill Paxton. It's, uh... Uh... Fuck! It's like a it's a good actor, and he gives him the look at the end and the, when they're in the helicopter. It's gonna kill me. But yeah, he he had to die, I guess, for the for the sins of the film. But you, you see what I was saying in that earlier part, like the Ice Cube Spike Jones dynamic should pay off somehow, and it just doesn't. Here's the thing: like, o Russell is a messy filmmaker. I think that that much I can gather from all the movies of his that I've seen, even the ones that I've liked, which I actually, I think that the only one I, I like is I Heart Huckabees. But even that one is, it's just messy. There's like shit all over the place and the story goes different ways. He has like so many characters and they bounce with each other. And, and so when you're doing that, I think that more things are not going to pay off than they will. Yeah. Because you're just throwing everything at the wall. And- but what he's really, really good at, and we've talked about this before, is convincing people he's better than he is in terms of filmmaking. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to say that because he has more Oscar nominations than I ever will. But what I mean is people think he's great because he uses these things in his movies that put viewers at ease. And things they can relate to, like in this, like the Beach Boys and all the music and stuff like that. And then everyone's having a good time and everything works out perfectly and happy endings. So it appeases the masses. And in a lot of cases, that's the critics, too. Yeah. Well, I think that in this particular case, he has just the advantage of, of he's saying something that that everybody wants him to say. You know, hey, war sucks. And, and you know, everybody's a dick out there. And everything that you thought was going on. Yeah, that's what's going on. It's it's. You know, fuck the police, and and I mean it's a valid point, but but I wish that there was a better movie constructed around it. It's it it meanders and it gets really preachy. That was one of my biggest problems with the movie was just how preachy it got at times. You have good actors; you can just let them. You can let the movie be subtle. You know, you don't have to let them explain to us how they feel at all times and what's going on. You know, I, I kept making jokes about George Clooney explaining the plot, but that is it, it's jarring when that happens. <laughs> Clooney is good in everything, so like he's the like one of the most polished actors of this generation or whatever. Uh, Ice Cube's great. Mark Wahlberg, who would have been like 
the hot guy at the time because this was just a year or two after Boogie Nights, I think. So he definitely. Oh, really? His star was very bright at this point. And Spike Jones, who is an infinitely talented filmmaker, and yeah, he's entertaining. This would have been around the time he was also assimilating the Jackass crew. So <laughs> he he was probably my favorite part of the movie. Uh, I think uh, Ice Cube is kind of let down by the movie, which is funny because he's the reason we picked this movie. Yeah, originally, but he he has the least to do. Uh, they keep going back to him praying. That's kind of like his thing, yeah. and and then. His character doesn't get much. The, yeah, I think that's another casting thing too, because this would have been just two, three years after Friday, and so like he would have been kind of like a, a good get rather. I, I'm making it sound like it's really terrible. It's not awful, but it's definitely right. not a 94. percent No, all kidding aside, I think it works better as an action movie than the comedy, mm-hmm. uh, because as a comedy, there's just so many stretches where there's nothing even remotely funny going on which makes sense because it's it's a horrible thing exactly yeah it's uh you know and children are dying like there's no this is no place for offbeat shenanigans (laughs) (laughs) it just feels weird that a movie that starts with a guy with a map stuck up his ass then gets just so weirdly serious and preachy later on you're right too i didn't even think of it until you were talking about there was no purpose behind the story trope of um Wahlberg getting shot in the lung that didn't Right, it just it anything. just it's just so weird. It's yeah. like, oh, we had this valve that installed. <laughs> it's just like a Russell read what a flutter valve was when he's <laughs> writing the script. It's like, hell yeah, let's use it. Let's use it twice. We'll use it when he gets shot, and then we'll use it later on in the in the climax. And that is also like, it seems like it goes on forever. Uh, I was getting restless after they. It's oddly paced. Yeah, it, it, you think that it's over once they rescue the people, but no. Now we have to get them through the border, and now Baba's gonna have you know gonna come and bust them. You're right. That the first twenty minutes is like a really good short film in and of itself like when they get to the gold but then the movie goes on for another hour and a half yeah it's not uh, but yeah I'll, I'll go back to what you said it's not a terrible movie it's I mean we've certainly seen worse and it's better than The Fighter yeah that, well, we were saying that yeah it's better than The Fighter it's, it's better been, than uh, Silver Linings Silver Linings yeah, oh and it's certainly better than American Hustle <laughs> it's much better than American Hustle yeah I, it, it, it takes you back the more he's grown as a filmmaker, or the more experience he's gotten as a the filmmaker, the more pandering and appeasing he's become, and more disorganized. Because really, if you come to his his most recent movie, American Hustle, that is just that is a mess that has absolutely. I, I would just say, okay, there were, there are flashes of that in this, like to me, of what he's become. Right, like the the gold bars falling on their feet. Like it's funny, and that the whole gimmick of American Hustle is it's these actors you know dressed in <laughs> 80s clothes but but you know he will defend it and, and it's defense will be like well no there's about it's about more than that you have to look past the shitty structure <laughs> and, and there really is something that he's saying well maybe but it's just so difficult to watch when it's a movie that's just kind of like this 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 amorphous mess. How did American Hustle get so many Oscar nominations? <laughs> because it has a good cast. It has a popular cast. It's a popular director by now. I mean, I'm talking like I absolutely know what's going on. <laughs> no, I, I, if I had to guess, if I, if you know, I have to guess why, you know, you have popular actors changing their appearance, and it's a movie that that, in a way, in a warped way, it's about the American dream. So of course, it's insightful and you know all that stuff. I, I don't know. And it's like a lot of fan favorites, you know, Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. uh, Amy Adams, Amy which Adams. she's great. But uh, yeah, this this one not so many Oscar nominations. I did see it was nominated for the Blockbuster Movie Awards, 
favorite team <laughs> action team award, which you know, R.I.P. Blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, that's cool moments. It had uh, I-, I laughed a few times throughout the entire movie. It's not even that completely disconnected from it. I, you I know, I- honest to God, when I was watching it, I literally kept thinking of the 2010 A Team and how <laughs> it's a far better movie. Because if you really want to, them fighting words here. <laughs> Have you seen it? No, but I'm just saying, like, anybody that's listened yeah, to this that likes Three Kings... Come, and... come at me, all right? <laughs> the 2010 A-Team is criminally underrated, but this is an A-Team movie. Kind of. I mean, yeah, maybe the origin of the A-Team. I could completely see these guys getting dishonorably or honorably discharged, and then they just take off and go around the world, uh, you know, fixing uh, all these other conflicts. Yeah, you got uh, Wahlberg's face. Um, you would have had to have uh, uh, Ice Cube is BA, obviously. Well, yeah, Spike Jones would have to survive. Oh, you know what? That's maybe who he reminded me of. Um, Murdoch. Yeah, Charlotte Copley. Uh, maybe you know he's getting kind of crazy. You, yeah. Um, yeah, the ending too was very bothersome. Just how everything worked out perfectly. Nora Dunn was an interesting addition, though. I found that to be pretty interesting. Like I was telling you when we were watching it, she has that kind of infamous reputation for. I was re-reading it. She didn't quit snl she was getting kicked off anyway but she was trying to get some press on the way out so she acted like she quit (laughs) but she was fine but yeah like that storyline went nowhere and it seems like jamie kennedy was in there just for stunt casting because it was he would have been a really hot name at that time too as unbelievable as that (laughs) yeah because this would have been the year after scream 2 came out so all those kids were on top of the world nev campbell's star was never gonna fade she should have been the reporter instead of uh, or the other reporter, the younger one. Judy Greer. Uh, Judy Greer. Now, yeah, Nev Campbell had a very strict stance on no sex or nude scenes. <laughs> I don't know. Not a 94%. I mean, if we're talking about just a movie, I don't know, man. I, I, it's like I a still, C. It's an average movie. No, I even give it like a B- minus or something. Because really, okay, if I hadn't been like looking for it in a very critical way, I could have just relaxed and, and you know, watched it. I would have... the the. Honest to God, the Spike Jonze's performance would have carried the movie for me anyway. Mm-hmm. He's I maybe part of it is that I know it's Spike Jonze, so to see him being an actor and just being so good at it was just very entertaining. And it's something as much trash as I'll talk about David O. Russell's films, I can say that they are some of the easiest to just digest, and that's a big part of his appeal and charm. But, dude, he's regressing the, or, or, or devolving or something because American Hustle, I couldn't even say that about no, it. No, that's the point. Like, I know I don't like his shit, so when I watch it, I look for things to be wrong with it. The last time I gave him a real shot was Silver Linings Playbook, and that movie infuriated me, and I think that's part of it, too. So when I saw American Hustle, I was like, all right, let's see what you got. And then, like, it's like, oh my god! Have you seen uh, *Hard Huckabees*? You said you hadn't, right? I haven't seen that. That's the only one I haven't seen of his uh, big, big movies. I I remember so little about it, but I I almost think that it works. I have to. I'm probably gonna put my foot in my mouth after I rewatch it and decide that I hate it. <laughs> but uh, I think that maybe the reason that one works is because from the very beginning, it's meant to be. A crazy movie that has, you know, it's just crazy. Like, I remember Dustin Hoffman and Louis Tomlin are these sort of paranormal investigators or something. And it, it's just really weird. It, it, it's from the very beginning, it's meant to be weird. Whereas, like, this one, at the beginning, you think it's like a war comedy and Silver Linings. At the beginning, you think it's just like a normal romantic comedy and American Hustle is supposed to be kind of a gangster movie, I guess, you know, and then they go into like this weird 
ways that don't work. But and then Jennifer Lawrence sings "Live and Let Die." Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe uh, uh, that's why that one works. But overall, I I usually okay take away American Hustle, which I thoroughly did not enjoy yeah. at all. Like there was I, there's a, the Robert Nero scene works for me really well there. That's the only thing. There's that works. I've told you that one part where. Bradley Cooper celebrating, cracking the case, and the I'm gonna kiss his boo boo. <laughs> that part's fucking hilarious, and uh, our listener Brandon Curtis agrees with me on that one. But yeah, outside of that, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, uh, uh, but then his other movies, I just I'll sit through them. I'll have mostly a good time. Like I enjoyed most of Silverman's Playbook until the very end, and then I'm like, fuck this, you know. It just <laughs> again talking about retroactively hating stuff. Like I think retroactively, I hate the entire movie after it disappoints me at the end. Yeah, this one's not not so bad, but I just got to the end. I'm like, uh, yeah, you could say it's his best movie, but that's not saying much. It's kind of funny too because it's like he was still kind of. The go get him rookie and trying a lot of things here, and that's where filmmakers make their most unsteady things. But this is like on his higher end for me because right. he didn't settle into his lazy pandering ways yet. Yeah, and you know, it's such a good idea. Maybe credit for that goes to John Ridley. I don't know what his original script was like, but because I really like the original concept of these guys going, you know, searching for secret treasure in Iraq. It's an A team movie, right, right after the war. <laughs> That's that with that cast. I would be like, yeah, bring it on. You know, I'm 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 down for it. And maybe maybe that's also part of it. I I was expecting a much more fun movie than I got. It is weird too because the cast there's not much gel. It's just individual performances. But like, I can't say that two people necessarily had good chemistry with each other in that. Well, at the end when uh, when Wahlberg holds uh, Spike Jonze's hand, you know, I I was like, I feel it. The vague attempt at making that an emotional scene. There's a wrestler named ACH who I often compare to David O. Russell because, like, everyone loves him. And I watch him, and he does, like, exciting things, but he doesn't know how to structure a match, and he doesn't really do anything <laughs> well. So, But he can do these big flip-de-doos that people are impressed with, and I'm just like, no, that doesn't mean he's good. Like, just calm down. But then, you know, the wrestling fans are like, who's David O. Russell? But, <laughs> I gotta say that now that we're we're closing it, I, I I feel bad because I think maybe some of my American Hustle hate has tainted this this episode <laughs> because I don't have I don't have as much beef with a Russell until you get to American Hustle and then I fucking hate that movie so so that might be part of it but no overall I mean Three Kings is good at best it's not great. My dad thinks I'm overly critical of films and. And then you're like, but I like the A-Team. Yeah, because well, it's a good movie. <laughs> but he thinks I'm overly critical. And I remember when I saw American Hustle, he was like, oh, is it good? I was like, no. And he's like, you're just overly critical. And him and my mother watched it. And I remember he called me and he's like, God, that movie was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And our friend Reed watched it too. And he was very confused when it was over he said he didn't understand why it was getting all the love it got this like half of the real talk of three kings has been bashing american hustle <laughs> fun fun watch and it's i think it's just kind of there for me it's just kind of a movie that's just like on its side i think it's more interesting to talk about than it is to actually watch yeah i think i, I would say that especially once you get into the crazy behind the scenes shit uh and uh, and certainly what the movie's attempting to say, I think that that's kind of worth uh, talking about. But but overall, the movie itself, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't work 
for it, me as well as it did for most people apparently it's no take me home tonight oh no 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 there's i mean there's there's not a single actor in this movie that even approaches what dan fogler does in take me home tonight okay so that was episode 18 that was three kings that was interesting i obviously we're gonna have to if we make it to like episode 50 we'll have to do like a three-hour american hustle just like beat down <laughs> We'll we'll have a special uh, a special guest, somebody that I guess that loves American Hustle, just so we can keep it balanced. <laughs> but that was episode eighteen for episode nineteen uh, under Julio's recommendation. It was a good one too. We're going to be doing Smoke and Aces, the two thousand six two thousand seven. Don't remember who it's directed by, but it is the it's uh, Joe Carnahan who directed the A Team. Did he? Yeah. Well, he's a good filmmaker. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not going to defend Smoke and Aces yet. I remember enjoying it when I saw it, but I was in college also and hadn't seen as many movies as I have now. I do know that I don't hate it. I can say that firmly because a lot of people really despise that. Movie. Yeah, I, I've seen it once as well, and uh, I, I liked it. I was I was entertained far more than this movie. So I remember Jeremy Piven being very good in it, and Common has this one really cool scene where he talks about how much he's going to beat up Jeremy Piven. That's really cool. And like we were talking about, it gave the world Chris Pine, so you can't hate it for that. I wanted to mention, I didn't know when to bring it up. I figured the end of the podcast is is close, is a, a good place for it. Remember, way back in episode 15, I think, whenever we talked about Elizabethtown, and we were talking about like Cameron Crowe's career, and you're like, man, has there ever been a filmmaker that you know was in such a hot streak, like good movie after good movie, and then they just kind of like drop in quality and, and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. And we're kind of thinking about it and i kind of mentioned spielberg i was like i know they had like a dry spell he had a dry spell and i remember who else we brought up but we never mentioned m night Shyamalan, which would be like the the prime example of what are you gonna say that that is different because i don't think unbreakable is good oh well fuck you then we're gonna <laughs> That I, is episode 100, yeah. in which we, we tackle Unbreakable. Yeah, uh, our friend and listener, Eddie, has always given me endless grief because I don't think Unbreakable is good. Oh, I will, too. Unbreakable is his best movie, and it's a really good one. Oh, okay. I think that's cute that you believe that. How do you rate his movies? Just uh, Now I'm curious. Six Sense. That's the only good one? Signs, signs works one time. <laughs> signs was good the first time I saw it, and then the second time I tried to watch it, it was bad. Um, well, even then, okay. So your personal opinion aside, I think that I mean, people... Unbreakable would be in the upper echelon because he's made so many terrible movies. I've never seen Lady in the Water. I have heard that it's it's not good, but but <laughs> neither still, is the happening. Right, but you could argue that as far as popular opinion goes, Shyamalan was he he was he had three really good ones, then one controversial one because The Village was like the first disappointment that he you know. He gave I've never us. Seen that either, but the I know the twist, and it just seems outlandish. It's good. It has really good performances, if anything. Um, and then after that, he just you know along the lines of of what Aloha is to Cameron Crowe, the rest of his movies are kind of like that to his career. Where you're like, what the fuck was he thinking? How did this? Did he forget how to make a movie? You know, uh, uh, Last Airbender is just it looks like a like like a film school project. I mean, it's just that bad. <laughs> Uh, and and the happening might be even worse. I don't know. Uh, he has a new movie coming out. The, oh, the yeah. visit, the visitors. Yeah. I don't know. It's, that might be good. I don't know. Maybe he's he's got his mojo back. Well, but, when that comes out, we'll have to do. Yeah, and of course, I mean, it's been so long since I got somebody mentioned M Night Shyamalan, and and you know how we completely didn't talk about him, and I was like, oh yeah. So now we have. 
Yes, and when the visit comes out, I guess we'll have to do the happening or like one of those really low-rated oh, movies. God, that'll be brutal to sit through again. But uh, to finish my thought, I said I'm not going to go ahead and say that I like uh, Smoking Aces or that it's a good movie, but I will always say that the A Team from 2010 is a fantastic film <laughs> that we will have to do one day. <laughs> So here in closing, regular things, uh, we're on iTunes, we're the Contrarians, not the Contrarians podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, SoundCloud. Um, yeah, the Contrarians there as well, uh, our email address. We are the Contrarians at gmail.com. I, I would love to get some hate mail from people that think we're either uh, disrespectful of the U.S. Army <laughs> or, uh, or that really love David Russell and they think that we completely missed the point. Please explain to me the point of any of his movies. <laughs> It's America, man. It's a happy ending. You too. It's anti-establishment and uh, something else. I don't know. Oh, I was uh, in our plug section. I have this friend who uh, I told her I'm going to mention your website because it's so funny. Uh, she just started. It's called Sorry We're Clothed. Not closed, but clothed as in clothing. Nice. It's uh, She just started and technically it doesn't launch until January 1st next year, but she's already laying the groundwork. Like, the groundwork. If you go right now, like... It's there, and she's getting ready. So the idea is that she realized how much money she was spending on clothes. Mm -hmm. So starting next year, for a whole year, she's not going to buy any new clothes. She's going to spend 365 days just with the wardrobe that she has right now. So what she's doing right now is taking pictures of every piece of clothing she has and putting it up there and kind of like cataloging it. And then once January 1st hits, she's going to kind of like every day she's going to document what she's wearing. And you're going to see the evolution or devolution of her wardrobe. And uh, there'll be moments when she'll just get rid of stuff that she just realized she's not wearing anymore. <laughs> and uh, she has, like, set the ground rules, which is that, you know, she can't get clothing from anybody. Not even, like, as a, she can't go shopping, obviously. But also she can't receive clothes as presents or anything. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, like, it was really funny when she told me. She's, she's, she's really funny to begin with. And then when she showed me the the... The website, she already has like three or four blog posts there, and it was it was just funny. I was like, oh, that sounds uh, like a funny project. Uh, the only thing that I was I was just giving her shit because she's a writer, and I was like, this is keeping you from writing. <laughs> it's really funny, though. So. so that is We Are Clothed. Sorry, what is it? Sorrywe'reclothed.com. Right on. And then .coms also, wearethecontrarians.com is our official website, so be sure to check that out. Anything else for this week? That was my my anything else. Oh. Slam Masters podcast hosted by Jod Golson, available at guttersandpanels.com. But that wraps up everything for this week. And as we said for the next episode, it will be smoke and aces. But that's going to do it for this time here on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash Films. That's O-V-N-I-O Films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira.